0: back to Surviving Justice, the realities of reporting rape podcast, and this is the prevention mini-series. Today is actually going to be the last episode in this little mini-series. It's not the last time I'll ever be talking about prevention, which leads me to exciting news at the end of this episode. But um, my guest today has so much interesting research on perpetrators and offenders of sexual violence that help make sense of so many things, and we know that we can't prevent rape unless we learn about perpetrators and offenders and the things that motivate them to commit these horrible crimes or the things that make it seem acceptable to them for some reason. So this conversation to me was super interesting. The work that she does is so important and I am so excited to have her on. So I'm just going to get right into it right away today.
1: I'm Colleen McDaniel. I am a fourth year PhD student at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am studying social personality psychology with research interests in uh, like masculinities, masculine peer norms, uh, directly related to sexual aggression um, and violence against women. I am a graduate teaching assistant normally, although this year I'm on a research fellowship, which is fun. So I study perpetration um, mostly and I, I really got interested in it because I, was doing a lot of activism around uh, sexual aggression and sexual violence in my undergraduate career. And I started to think about, um, you know, what was the research that was related to prevention work? And it's interesting, I've had a lot of conversations with other researchers in the field who do, you know, research on victims. And there is, I think, sort of a controversy sometimes about it because people are like, you know, we need to be getting, capturing, victims' voices and capturing survivors' voices and um but I think you know that's so true but on the other hand we really have to you know understand what's going on and why it's happening in order to really prevent it sort of get at the the source of it um, and I also was a women's and gender studies major um, in college and I had this um I don't know if you've ever heard of Gail Dines but she's a pornography philosopher, I think, researcher, sociologist, maybe. Um, And she, I saw her talk on campus once, and she said, like, um, you know, men who commit rape are not sexual deviants. They are actually extreme conformists to a patriarchal culture. And that, like, really took me to my core
0: (laughs) um
1: and so right isn't that really it's just really intense to think about
0: it's horrifying but very true
1: (laughs) oh true yeah and so and so that's actually really like what got me interested in in perpetration because i was like you know it's so important to study um victimology and everything but i think like well you know what what is going on with people and how have we failed um women and men as a society to just create this culture of violence that kind of sets everybody up for for failure and and for violence
0: and given that we live within this culture of violence and rape culture that is so toxic and so detrimental i asked her a little bit more to talk about some of the research that's been done on aggressors and what kinds of things she finds within her research and within that whole entire realm of research that i honestly really don't have (laughs) much knowledge of at all
1: yeah, so uh, the the Bible of prevention and um, aggressor research, if you will, is uh, what's called the Confluence Model, and it was um, largely developed by um, Oh my God, now his, his name is escaping me. Uh, Neil Neil Malamuth, is that right? Yes. Um, And that model is really set up in two sort of constellations. So you have, um, if you can just imagine, like literally like a constellation of stars almost, but it's a constellations of characteristics about people and experiences. Um, So you have this impersonal sex sort of cluster is what it's called. And then this one that's called hostile masculinity. And in the impersonal sex one, you have all of these past experiences, so it can be um, things like, you know, witnessing abuse as a child or experiencing it, um, delinquent behavior, um, and then that all sort of relates to actually engaging in high amounts of sex, of course, because you're, um, you're just exposed to more potential situations where you could be an aggressor, um, because, you know, you have to ask for consent more, you don 't ask for consent more um, and then you also there's this really impersonal piece to it where you detach yourself from sex and so when you when you detach yourself from sex and you don't you know it's not an act of caring or pleasure it's it's just sort of what it is then you don't care for the other person that you're engaging with and so you're not going to ask for consent you're not going to Wonder if they're feeling pleasure. You're not going to stop and worry about them. You're just going to do what you need to do to to achieve sex. Um, and then this sort of second constellation is um, hostile masculinity, and that's really where my work focuses in a lot um, because it's really where you know we talk about like hegemonic masculinity and this sort of dominant gender role of men in our culture. And hostile masculinity is kind of a, a piece of that larger norm, I guess, or that larger role. And what it covers a lot of is these very, like, hostile beliefs and attitudes towards women. Rape myths would be included in that. Um, so believing that, like, women deserve to be raped. Um, you know, a lot of distrust towards women. Um, heavy alcohol consumption. So... Um, we see that as something that you know lowers men's inhibitions so that they can act on aggression um, and then male peer norms, which is really where my research uh as of late has been more focused on and and more interested in um because we what we see is that in in groups of men there's sort of two two sides to it and uh, cut me off at any point or <laughs> probe me, you know, um, but in in one aspect, like, who do men look to, um, you know, look to for validation is, is their their peers. And so, you know, I can't remember who it is. I want to say it's Michael Kimmel, but I don't like to talk about him because it actually came out that he's a sexual harasser, but he had a really great book before all that. <laughs> Um, and I guess research is me search <laughs> calling him out. Um, <laughs> but he did a lot of research on like this really these awful masculine norms. And um one of them is say, he says like, you know, men don't have sex with a lot of women because only because they see women as objects um and because they want to degrade women. It's actually has it has little to do with the women themselves it's actually a lot more about like women are seen as trophies for their male peers. And so if you, if I go out as a man and have sex with all these women then I can bring them back to my buddies and say, Hey, look, like I have this status as a man. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, it's more subtle than that. guys don't talk that way, but, um,
0: interesting because it's like, it's like a mixture of this, like objectification, but like, it's like a high level prize in a way. Yeah, because masculine, yeah, well,
1: and and it's because, like, you know, women are so tied to femininity, and this is, like, the really interesting part of gender is, like, when you become a woman, like, when you get your period, right? For females, it's it's when you get your period, Um, um, you know, sticking, of course, to the confines of the binary, Mm -hmm. Um, and then, so it's very attached to your biology, and you're expected to have kids stay in the home. Like it's very bio- biology based, which I think is where like, and this is a whole nother conversation, but like where mm-hmm. trans identities just really like throw a wrench in that, which is awesome. But, um, <laughs> um, but then like for men, it's, it's something that you earn. And, and we see that in like, you know, man up, like be a man, you have to earn your manhood. And and that manhood can be lost and your masculinity can be lost um, and that I think is what is really really fascinating about you know these peer norms and and yeah like you said this this sort of intersection of objectification and um, like earning it because it it is like they have to maintain their masculinity and how do they do that by you know constantly proving that they're men.
0: I thought this concept of masculinity being earned and maintained purely almost by social structures rather than biological ones was really, really interesting. And it supports so much of the other social science and different things that we know from public health research and just general social science research. So that was pretty fascinating. Some of Colleen's work also focused on the relationship of alcohol to aggressors. And I was interested in finding out a little bit more about how that could influence um, an aggressor's decision or capacity or lower their inhibitions to be more likely or just i guess in general what the relationship was between alcohol um use and aggressors of sexual violence
1: we like to say that alcohol is a cause uh like a causal factor among many um so there certainly is a causal relationship meaning that it leads to sexual aggression perpetration um but it's not the cause because there are so many other factors that are also causal and contributing. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, So with that, what we find is, is that consistently, that men who perpetrate when drinking um, tend to score very high on these sort of other traits um, that, that are common in perpetrators in general. So, um, for example, aggressiveness, dominance, um, attitudes that would support violence towards women, um, and other casual sexual behaviors. Um, and so they score higher on those sorts of traits than non-perpetrators do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we think about it in that way, um, it's really that it's, it's sort of this taking on this facilitator type of role, like you said. I wouldn't Say that there's enough research out there to really be definitive in like the motivational piece, and I think that's where our field in general is is really lacking. Um, if I'm being completely honest, I think sure. we need more. Like it's it's a very like black box right now. You know, we don't really know what the the exact motivations are because, you know, do do we know if someone like goes out and gets drunk with the intention? of sexually assaulting? No, it's possible. Um, but I think that it's, it's really that this group of men have these already violent characteristics, um, and traits and previous behaviors and alcohol. All it does chemically in our brains is, um, you know, it makes cues less salient to us and it, Inhibits our higher cognitive functioning. So basically, it just, you know, lowers our inhibitions. Um, Alcohol does not change behavior. It does not make someone more aggressive. It just brings out the things that our inhibitions would stop us from doing when sober.
0: I definitely want to make it really clear that I wasn't asking if alcohol was a cause of rape, obviously. I was just more curious as to how that might influence somebody who is already a rapist is going to act, and I thought that that response was really interesting. So um, on top of that, given what we know about sexual violence and about violence and cycles of violence in general, I also asked her if she had some insight that she could give on what kind of background makes a rapist, right? So... I think a lot of times there's a misconception that people who were born into violent households or were victims of abuse themselves often become perpetrators. That's not necessarily true, and I'm more interested in thinking about narcissism and entitlement and how those different factors influence, um... Influence perpetration. So I asked her if she knew anything about that, and she had some really interesting things to say about that as well. As far as if that's something that is being studied within this field of aggression,
1: it is. Yeah. So um, narcissism, uh, psychopathy, um, those have both been studied. It's it's not really my area of expertise, um, but they are included in in sort of that model, and um, you know. Personality traits, I think, get tricky or personality traits, personality disorders get tricky because it's not quite known where, how they develop and they can come from, they can develop from trauma, um, but not always. And, and I think that's like an area that's really tough because, oh, this is like such a path, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, it's a really hard area because you don't ever want to imply that you know, experiencing trauma is going to make you violent or that experiencing or witnessing violence means that you're going to commit it yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is where it can get really difficult. But but yeah, definitely um, narcissism and uh, psychopathy are both uh, predictors of of perpetration
0: more in more of a distal sense. Interesting. Okay. And then you kind of mentioned that this area is, is a black box as far as what we know. And I, I have to wonder how do you, how do you find your subjects for this research? And um, is that difficult <laughs> to, be to, you know, to find aggressors who are willing to participate in a study? And like, how does that process work for you?
1: It is hard. So what we generally do is compare perpetrators to non-perpetrators because that's really the best that we can do Mm so because what what ultimately what we have to do is um you know just give our give our surveys or you know bring people into the lab for our experience um broadly so like we have to give it to everyone you know Uh, men always we always do like cisgendered men um but the I guess we just kind of collect from everyone and then we measure past perpetration generally um, there early on in the field, there was a lot of research in like prison populations, but the, the limitations of that is that then you capture folks who are generally engaged in far more violent acts because, you know, as, we both know very well men don't get sent to prison very often Mm -hmm. for for sexual assault so they tend to represent a far more extreme population than you know men who commit sexual aggression in um less severe is what we say that's kind of the term that we use but in less severe ways um so meaning that you know they may not use um extreme tactics like weapons or uh, physical force they may use like verbal coercion or alcohol more more so so sort of and by severe i don't mean like worse i mean like you know more everyday, more accessible
0: yeah so i don't know about you all but i was just really curious about how you get rapists to participate in research willingly um so that was interesting But jumping back to that previous idea about masculine socialization and how that can contribute to aggressiveness and sexual aggression in particular, um, I wanted to jump back to that and see what else she could share about that topic since that was honestly so interesting to me.
1: If you think about if you think about, you know, leading up to a moment of sexual aggression, like one single instance, sort of along this timeline of the moments leading up to it could influence them in a number of different ways. Um, so at one point, you know, having the drive or interest in having casual sex could very much be related to, you know, a goal, um, to appear masculine to friends by engaging in casual sex. So it's sort of what I was saying earlier with, um, using women as like trophies to prove your masculinity, um, In other ways, it could be further up along that timeline, more like in the moment. And this was actually my master's thesis, but it didn't work out because my methods were not amazing, but um, I'd like to to receive it more. Most master's thesis thesis (laughs) go. Yeah, right, exactly, like, you know, it's a quick project, so, Um, but theoretically speaking, and still needing actual research to be done on it, Um, From a theoretical perspective, later in that time point and sort of in the moment, um, it should be that like an an actual rejection could be threatening of a man's masculinity um, in the sense that he feels entitled to sex. And actually sexual entitlement is a predictor that we see. Um, And so because he feels entitled to sex, he feels like she's challenging him when she rejects him. And so he uses physical force or any type of sexual aggression, right, to sort of reassert himself. Where my mind kind of immediately goes is to the traditional sexual script, um, which is kind of this idea that, you know, in any situation we have a script, whether it's learned from a culture, from a subculture, whatever, you know, if you go to a wedding, you know what to expect. At least if it's like a Western Christian, you know, typical wedding, you kind of know what to expect. Um, there's going to be a white dress, there's going to be presents, there's going to be a reception, like that's the script. Um, and that actually carries over even into our sexual encounters. And the what's, what's called the traditional sexual script is that you know, men are the initiators of sex and women are the gatekeepers and women sort of because of these gender roles to be very, you know, modest and prudent and protecting of their sexuality have to reject the man's sexual desires and and sexual advances. But he, it's, it's sort of his job then to keep pushing her and let her know that, know this can continue and that this is how it's supposed to be um and that force is even acceptable if necessary um and that's like a whole um thing but i think because we have these scripts that are so built into us that we we all sort of have this script and it's it's in film it's in you know pornography all sorts of media around us um i think to ultimately change that, we really have to change the culture. Um, and that's such a like broad, vague thing to say. But (laughs) I mean, I think it's gonna come down a lot to um, you know, changing gender roles. And I think a lot of that work is is really being done um by the queer community. I think there's a lot of visibility around that, um, and a lot more of those conversations, but you know, we really have to change what that script is and we have to have um, I think larger conversations about it and then I think there needs to be you know better sex education like is a big one you know we need to talk to kids at a young age you know when like when is the first time that kids get sexual violence prevention education is like the first day that they step on campus Mm -hmm. Um, so you know what even happens to you if you never go to college Right. and then really like, you know, in sexual education there, there's this, at least in comprehensive sex education, there's this opportunity to talk about sexual behavior and talk about, you know, setting boundaries and talking about sex and what is consent, you know, cause consent doesn't happen at the beginning only. Consent is this ongoing process. Um, but, but we're not having those conversations at young ages. We're not having those conversations in mass media. And so I think that's really where it has to come from.
0: I think this is a really critical point because, in Every single one of these prevention miniseries, every single one of them talks about education earlier and younger. That's been across the board, and that's the one thing that is so tremendously lacking, especially in the United States. And I think it's an especially good point to bring up that if you're only talking about this in college, some people don't go to college, and by then, some people are already perpetrating. So by then, it's already too late. And speaking of different theories in particular, um, Colleen had started to talk about the social norms approach, which I thought was really interesting and gave some really helpful and interesting food for thought when it comes to this whole topic.
1: The social norms approach was um, sort of developed by um, Berkin, Berkowitz and Perkins, almost combined their last names. Um, <laughs> and it w- it started out actually with alcohol prevention, um, like binge drinking prevention largely on college campuses and in high schools. And it's sort of, um, it, it goes with the assumption that people over-perceive their peers' engagement in unhealthy behaviors. Um, so with drinking, that would look like, you know, a college freshman who comes to campus and assumes, you know, oh, the everybody on campus drinks, and therefore I have to engage in binge drinking in order to fit in. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of this, this broad idea. And that has been more recently in the past um, five years, I'd say, maybe, maybe longer, but um, more recently has been really brought to the sexual violence arena um, because we have kind of like what I talked about earlier with you know, the peer norms of being validated by your peers. Um, And we see that men who have, who feel that their friends um, approve of forced and coercive sex, approve of sexual aggression, we see that they're more likely to engage. Um, But what we didn't think of, and this was a paper in in 2016 um, from, I think it was Tina Dardis and um, Chris Gittich, I know we're on it, Uh, but they showed that, you know, we were using this self-report measure. So what we were actually capturing was not the actual male peer norms. We were capturing men's perceptions of their peer norms. And so what they did was they brought into the lab a friend with their subjects. And so they compared the perceptions of the subject's friend to the friend's actual beliefs and behaviors, and what they found was that perpetrators overperceived their friends' negative attitudes towards women, their friends' perpetration behaviors, and their friends' approval of perpetration behaviors. So, what that showed was this sort of social norms approach that people who engage in in violence may actually be using. Um, maybe using those perceptions and, and that idea that their friends are approving of their behavior to justify their behavior. So the idea with with the social norms approach in prevention is to take people's perceptions and, and give them an accurate measure of what their friends and their peers actually believe. So that, that I know of, it hasn't been... Um, Done related to sexual aggression. At least I haven't seen a publication on it yet. So someone might be doing it, but they haven't tested it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like with alcohol and smoking, and actually I saw a study one time about wearing your seatbelt. <laughs> um, what they do is they literally will compare the the kind of sit you down at a computer and you look, you know, you report your own beliefs, and ahead of time they've collected like either your campus or your workspace or wherever they're targeting. Um, They've collected people's actual beliefs and behaviors around whatever the target behavior is. Um, And then they measure your perceptions and then they give you feedback immediately that says, wow, did you know that you actually drink 99% or more than 99% of your peers? Or did you realize that, most people actually in your workplace are not taking smoke breaks or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's a lot of promise, though, with that, because it's been really successful in all these other areas. And when we think about, um, you know, this really important social aspect of peer norms that, that influences men and, and this very social aspect to masculinity and maintaining manhood, I think it's very, very promising um, because it takes this really excellent and direct approach to you know to combating these justifications and, and these reasons for engaging in, in sexual aggression.
0: So the social norms approach is so interesting and it is used a lot um, commonly in public health kind of interventions, like she was mentioning with alcohol use. I remember even walking on campus when I started graduate school and seeing posters around saying like, did you know that 66% of students have only had one drink in the last month and different things like that. So it can even be like this really passive approach when you're not doing research to be able to engage with people and get them to kind of understand what the actual norm is around different things. And so in terms of thinking of that in in around sexual violence, I think is so interesting, especially because as we know um, from the research that there is so far, is that it is so heavily socially implicated that it's almost the norm or it's okay. And we can see that all over the place in victim blaming and in our culture around consent. But if we could change that messaging, then it might make people more likely to call out their friends. Um, It might make people more likely to examine their own behaviors and potentially even seek help if they're not really sure what they are supposed to be doing. But still, I feel like it's kind of gut-wrenching that we're still in this point in society where sexual violence and not understanding consent, we're still at, like, bare minimum awareness level of that and not further along than we could be despite so many decades of um, primarily women but you know just a lot of people in general who have been working really hard to be able to change this whole perception and to change the whole culture around around sexual violence and speaking of changing things I also asked Colleen if there were any kind of limitations that we have right now and things that we don't know about in the field of sexual violence and research that we should know a little bit more about, or at least things that could potentially be studied more people or groups that are being left out.
1: I would say, um, I think there's still a lot. So, you know, we, I always start out my my presentations and things with like, you know, the the recognition that this is very binary work that is being done right now. And we're still not advanced in it. Um, And and I think a lot of researchers kind of tell ourselves like, oh, because, you know, this is the most common type of sexual assault, like, which is technically true. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think people oftentimes use that as an excuse to not study perpetration among, like the gay community, the queer community, like there's very little on bisexuality, um, and then violence against trans folks. Um, and so I think that you know that we really, as a field, need to start working towards being better about overcoming our our biases and our um, our own experience. I think because I think a lot of it is you know a lot of us go into it, right? Because we're survivors. Um, and so we really want to study our own experience, but I think we need to be better about doing intentional recruiting and intentional, um, research around, you know, what happens in, um, queer relationships, what happens in, um, the lives of trans folks. So I, I think that's like my biggest takeaway probably is to other researchers, like a call to action to, um, to do that research. Cause I think people are also afraid that like, it's kind of this turf mentality of like, oh, you know, they don't conform to gender norms. And so they're, they're gonna throw off our gender theory, but it's not true. I think, you know, LGBTQ plus, like it all fits into the gender narrative, right? Like there wouldn't be so much, homophobia and transphobia if it wasn't for these awful gender stereotypes that we have. Yep. So I think what we would actually find is that we're very confirmed in our theories because um, I think it would still follow this, this path of, um, you know, patriarchal gender norms that are, you know, effing us all over. Like, and with that too, you know, we don't, we don't study sexual violence against boys and men. And I've heard a lot of pushback from other researchers of like, we shouldn't be studying that or like it happens in different ways or men over report sexual violence against themselves because they don't really understand what it is. And I've like, every time I hear that I cringe because I have very close friends who are men who have been assaulted. And um, I think we need to have this broader conversation. You know, one in six men experience unwanted sexual touch by the age of 18.
0: Still so much work to be done. And if you're interested in learning more about Colleen's work, here's where you can find her.
1: I can be found on social media, both on Instagram and Twitter, at violence underscore femme, as in like the band from the 80s, like the Violent Femmes, it's my tacky, (laughs) (laughs) my tacky handle. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I can be found on Instagram and Twitter, Um, And then I'm also on Google Scholar. If you look up M. Colleen McDaniel, you can find my published work there.
0: I absolutely love that handle. (laughs) I don't think it's tacky at all. And um, I would highly recommend that you give her a follow because she's always posting just super, super interesting content. And I'm always, I always find myself looking to her page to learn a little bit more. So definitely recommend following her. And thank you so much, Colleen, for being on here and for sharing all of your insight and research and all of your knowledge about this topic. It's been so important. So with that, I'm pretty much wrapping up this little mini prevention series that just talks about different ways of preventing sexual violence, different topics, and um, hearing from all these different people who have been doing different kinds of work that all strive towards reaching the same goal, but I think what's so interesting is that even though none of these people I don't believe have ever met each other, worked together, um, really in much of a capacity, anything like that, all of them have very similar messages. First of all, of course, like I mentioned earlier, around education and awareness that still needs to be done, especially at a really early age. But also a lot of them introduce the social piece and the way that we interact with each other. So all of that interpersonal connection that we emphasize so much in public health and can be so helpful when trying to figure out and trying to deal with all these huge social issues. And when we can do that, we can also build healthier communities and also start to think bigger and longer term about implementing different kind of policies, changing our laws, and working towards action that's really sustainable and truly helpful and evidence-based that can be hopefully be helpful in finally eliminating a culture of sexual violence that is persistent and that we really don't have any kind of meaningful consequence for in the U.S. right now, as we know from season one. So yeah, that's pretty much it. However, I'll still be talking about prevention in future episodes when I get into season three, and season three is going to be an ongoing series called Follow-Up. The reason that I'm bringing this up now is because um, I'm going to be launching it on Monday, February 1st. As you all know, I typically like to post on Mondays. Um, And here's the thing about that. So I actually started up a Patreon account. Um, So if this is something that you're interested in, if you've learned anything from any of the interviews, If you're interested in supporting um, my research and my work and all of the time that I spend on doing these podcasts and all of the work that kind of goes into that as well as helping to supplement the cost of basically being able to keep this hosted up on the site that I use, Buzzsprout, please consider becoming a patron and and or making a donation. Um, You can find me on Instagram if you'd like to donate and you can also find me on Patreon. There's some exciting things like some exciting extras, There's going to be Q&A's, you can ask a question about a topic that I'll then research and do an episode on for you. Um, And it's going to be kind of like a random hodgepodge of things that are just really interesting and different interviews. Um, A lot of different things are going to be going on um, throughout the next coming year. So if you'd like to learn more about that, you can message me at Podcast, which is my Instagram handle, and you can also send me an email at survivingjusticepodcast at gmail.com, and I would be so grateful for your support, it really means a lot, um, and hopefully there will also be some other things that come out with that, but it would be so helpful and so meaningful, and really, truly, I would appreciate it so much. It'll help me to keep this podcast going if it's something that's been helpful to others in, in any way at all. So again thank you so much for listening to this little tiny mini series and thank you for all of the messages and the outreach and the ideas that i've gotten from all of you um i'm really hoping that the next season will be successful and then we'll see where it goes from there so thanks again for listening and please feel free to reach out i'd love to hear from you